All right, while everybody's coming in, the, the usual announcements, we need proofreaders, so if you're interested, contact Dean Bible Ministries, and we have three trips next year, Egypt, Greece, and Israel. And then one new thing to put on your calendar on Saturday, October the 19th, we've decided that the uh, area needs to get a lot of rain, so we have selected that date for the church picnic. All right, so go ahead and make your plans and your alternate plans. And we'll see if the Lord allows us to have a picnic this, this uh, fall. We haven't had one in a, in a couple of years. So we'll see how that, that works out. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Before we begin, we'll have a few more, a few moments of silent prayer. We need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, ready to focus on his word as we uh, worship him and respond to his grace as we study the word this evening. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. If you need to confess sin, then that gives you the opportunity to recover your walk with the Holy Spirit and prepare for our time of study this, this evening. So let's pray. Father, we're so grateful we can be here. We're grateful we have the freedom to be here in a congregation that teaches your word, that we're in a country that allows freedom, recognizes that we have these rights of freedom, not because of government, but because this is part of who we are as human beings created in your image and likeness. Father, we're in the midst of a difficult and often um, bitter, angry hateful political season, and we just pray that that um, we as believers can keep our focus on you. Our trust is not in man. Our trust is in you. Father, we pray that we might be uh, have a real peace about whichever direction the nation goes, knowing that you are in control. Father, we also pray for us as a congregation that we might be a faithful witness and a light not only to those in our immediate community, but as the word goes forth from this pulpit around the world, we pray that you would uh, just continue to bless that and challenge people with their spiritual growth and with the truth of your word, that you might be glorified. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles this evening to Second Samuel chapter 10. You might want to stick your thumb over by chapter 8. We'll do a little bit of review and what we're looking at this evening in chapter 10 is just how God works in giving Israel the victory in these battles. There's an interesting thing about this particular situation in 2 Samuel chapter 10, and that is that God's name is only mentioned one time. And so when you look at this, and we look at chapter 8, the history of battles, and we look at what is going on in chapter 10 with the 
uh, war between David and the Ammonites. If you read it over quite a few times, you begin to think, we're not getting the whole story here. Under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, we're given the information we need, but there is a lot more going on here. And if you take the time to study, and we'll see the results of my study this evening, you'll discover that there really is a lot more going on here. We have a couple of different levels, as I pointed out the last couple of weeks in our study. One is what's going on in terms of the way the writer is writing and presenting this information. We call that sort of the, the literary development and how this is structured. And then on, on, on another hand, we also have the history that is taking place at this time, and the history relates to a, what we would call a normal chronological development. And we normally read a history that is written chronologically. Most history that you and I are familiar with, that we grow up with, we pick up biographies, we pick up history books, and they're written chronologically. But that is not how Scripture is written because this, while it is about history and deals with history and reality that happened, it is arranging the material in a thematic way in order to highlight the way God is working, A, in the life and history of Israel, and B, in the life of, of, of David. And I pointed this out last time in terms of review and in terms of of overview that we have seen in the first nine chapters how God has blessed David and how he is, that is David, is uniting and expanding the kingdom. And that's from chapter 2 through chapter 9. And we saw that in this section comes to an end in two chapters that relate to God's grace and faithfulness emphasize those words are used there we see God's faithfulness to David and there's this this summary of action in chapter 8 and we'll come back to that in a minute chapter 8 deals with the background for chapter 11 but it's bringing that first section to a close as I pointed out a lot of people think the next section begins in chapter 11. It really begins, as I pointed out last time, we'll go review that in just a minute, uh, with the beginning of chapter 10. But the writer's writing thematically. He's showing how God is working in David's life and blessing David and bringing him along and brings it to the, the ultimate in David's life, which is the covenant uh, with God. But we see that even there that... that um, uh, that it's not arranged uh, chronologically, for we read it that in um, chapter 7, verse 1, now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, that's his palace, he's built that, he's at peace, he's at rest, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. And then we have the story of how God reveals the, that he's going to make a covenant with David through the prophet Nathan, and David's response to that at the end of chapter 7, and we spent many months talking about that. And then we come to chapter 8, and it starts off, and this, thus it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. Well, wait a minute, I thought we just read at eight at 7-1 that after all these battles, those events took place. So clearly this is not written in chronological order. 
and that these conquests that occur take place actually chronologically before the giving uh, the giving of the covenant. And so we see clearly from the text that this is arranged in a thematic manner and not in a, in a, a chronological manner. In the second part of the book, from chapter, that should be chapter 10, not 20, I changed this from my, I'm going to go ahead and fix it now, I changed this from my original outline. Let's see if I can get back to wherever this that was. Okay, we're going to change that to 10. Okay, there we go. Now we're straight. 2 Samuel 10 to 20, and this is God working in David's life. Chapter 10 is the setup. Forget the verses, forget the chapters. It's very clear from a number of things that everything shifts with the beginning of chapter 10. Chapter 10 is really the introduction. It's the setup for uh, what happens with David and Bathsheba and Uriah and the consequences, which is, which is the focus of what takes place in, in chapters uh, 11. Uh, 11 and 12 covers the, the sin itself, and then the consequences are in 13 uh, through 20. And this shows that David does have, like all of us, we have a sinful side, a dark side, when our sin nature takes over and there are consequences that disrupt our lives and, and the lives of everybody around us because of sin, but yet God's grace is sufficient. And so it allows the writer to, first of all, portray how gracious God is to David, how wonderful a king David was overall. But then, on the other hand, it's not he's not painted as the ideal king. There are sins and there are flaws and there are massive failures in his life, but he's not like Saul. It's not a sin of rebellion against God as Saul's sin was. So that's the setup. So we get into chapter 10, which is, we just, which is where we ended last time. We just got started there. And as we get into chapter 10, we see that these next chapters going into the first part of chapter 12 are tied together by the repetition of this word shalach in Hebrew. It means to send. It's used 62 times or 129 times in First and Second Samuel together, so in the whole book. 62 times, or a little less than half of that in Second Samuel, but 23 of those, or a third of those in Second Samuel are in these chapters. That tells you something. In Bible study methods, one of the laws of Bible study is to look at proportion. Another is repetition. And a lot of times the writers tie, these, tie certain things together by the repetition of certain words, and they're designed to emphasize certain things. So we begin in chapter 10. David is going to be sending these emissaries to Hanun, who is the new king in, in Rabbah, in Ammon. And then it ends with Yahweh sending Nathan to confront David uh, with his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. So that ties it all together. Now, this is important because as we go through the word, we're always reminded, or I'm always reminded when I think through Scripture, that we have a clear statement in Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all Scripture is breathed out by God 
And it is profitable, first of all, for doctrine, for teaching, for, for uh, communicating important information to us, that, that this isn't here just because it's a, a reporter giving interesting information about David and these battles. You can read through certain sections of Scripture and you read these battles and your eyes may glaze over if you're not interested in military or military history. And really, chapter 10 covers these battles. There's actually two battles that take place within the chapter in, in, very, uh, in a very quick, quick, superficial way. But they're important when you spend time looking at the whole structure of what's happening and what's said in other passages of Scripture, uh, how things are, are being put together within David's life and what the whole setup is. So what we're going to do, first of all, is just kind of look at this literary flow in chapters 8 and 9, uh, mostly chapter 8, and the, then the historical flow. So we see the literary flow in 8... I should change that, 8 and 10, then the historical flow, and then we're going to examine 2 Samuel 10 in more detail, as I pointed out last time. And before we get to chapter 11, we're going to have to take some time looking at the psalm that, uh, <clears throat> that David wrote uh, in, the, in uh, following the victory in chapter 10. And then we're going to look at understanding the broad teaching for us that we find in this passage. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Now, you may not find everything there in any given passage, but we do find instruction here, and sometimes we find, we look at it, and the, the message for us in terms of a theological or doctrinal implication is pretty simple. And so we will, uh, we will be... Uh, we'll, we'll be looking at this. God isn't mentioned in this chapter except one time, and that's in the mouth of Joab in verse 12. That's the only time we have the mention of the name God. And in verse 12, we read be, that uh, in the midst of the battle, as he and Abishai are setting up the strategy that they're going to take when they get into this battle, realizing they, that they have walked into a massive ambush, uh, Joab says to Abishai, be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God and may Yahweh do what is good in his sight. Now, this is from the lips of Joab, and we know that Joab isn't exactly one of the spiritual giants of the Old Testament. I think he was a believer. He is uh, David's uncle, and he and Abishai are brothers, <clears throat> but uh, he's not known for his uh, spiritual maturity. He, he's more of a hit man sometimes, and sometimes he's just taken things on on his own, and he, he really becomes a, a problem for David later on. David never seems to have the courage to cut Joab down to size, but on his deathbed, he tells Solomon that Solomon's got to go ahead and execute Joab because of everything that, uh, that he has done. So that tells us something. That tells us 
that God is still in control. It's like looking at the book of Esther. Esther never mentions the name of God. In all of the chapters, never mentions God. What you see is a earthly event that takes place, but you know that what is controlling everything is God. And that's the same kind of thing that you see here in chapter 11, is that God is completely in control in all of these different circumstances, and he is pulling things together. But when we look at these chapters, we see that there are various major characters. Hanun, who is the new king of, of Ammon, and David, of course, the king of Israel, and Joab, who's the general, uh, commanding general over the armies of Israel, and his brother Abishai. And then there's minor players. And we look at these minor players, and you have the commanders of the uh, army of the Ammonites. You have the commanders as well as the soldiers of the Syrians. You have the king of the Syrians, who's Hadadezer, and you have the commanding general, Shobak, and then you have the Aramaic troops. And all those people are making decisions. All those people are involved in, in, uh, in determining the course of events. How are they going to respond to certain circumstances and situations? What are they going to do? Uh, Hanun is going to respond to David sending emissaries by uh, cutting off their beards and chopping off their clothes so that uh, basically they're being sent home naked from the waist down, which is a sign of incredible disrespect and shame. And he's making a very profound statement. And why does he do this all of a sudden? Where does this come from? This just seems to just pop out out of the blue. So we have all these different decisions. Then David has to decide how he's going to respond, and he seems to respond very quickly as if he expected something, and Joab's at the ready. And then Joab is going to have to make decisions in the heat of battle. And all of these individual decisions remind us that we live our lives under the providential uh, providential care and supervision of God, but we're making responsible decisions and we're responsible for their success or their failure, even though ultimately God is the one who is in control. It's the emphasis on divine institution, number one, and and personal responsibility. So we, we're going to look at this as kind of structure things in this way as we move through uh, through the chapter. Now, one of the things I want to point out from last time, and I want to clarify, I want to clarify this. I don't know if it was just confusion on my part or uh, that, that I certainly can get a little bit cloudy sometimes as I'm trying to deal with this mass, mass of detail and all the things that I have been reading and studying on this. But I was quoting from uh, Eugene Merrill, Eugene, and I, didn't, I don't think I made it clear that uh, Eugene Merrill in his a book on the kingdom of priests, which I think is, is outstanding, and I do recommend that as a good history overview of the, of the Old Testament, has one view of interpreting what is happening here. I don't think that that's the view that I'm teaching. He thinks that this attack that comes at the end on Edom in the middle of chapter 8, um, that that is a summary of what happens what happens in Second Samuel chapter 12. I don't think so. I think this actually precedes what happens in, in chapter 10. And I, as I look at this, I think one 
aspect of, of Hebrew literature that's a narrative that's important to remember is that they don't write history like we do. A lot of times, and, it's, and you can find examples of this all the way through <clears throat> the uh, historical books, is you'll have a chapter, a sentence, or a chapter, a paragraph, something like that, that gives you a summary and an overview, and then immediately you get into the details of what happened. So it's not like one chapter follows another chapter. For example, the classic illustration is Genesis chapter 1. You have the seven days of creation. God rests on the seventh day, and he looked at his creation. Everything was very good. It goes Actually, that goes down to chapter 2, verse 3. Then you get into chapter 2, verse 4 in Genesis, and everything in Genesis chapter 2 from 4 on is a drill down on what happened on day 6 when God created man. When God created first Adam, and then later he creates uh, Eve, and they are in the garden, and that's chapter 2 deals with that. So you have this a lot. So chapter 8 coming to the conclusion of this first literary section in, in, in Samuel, and it is closing out with two episodes related to God's grace to David and then God, David's uh, imitating that, showing grace to Mephibosheth. So there is a, um, a progression there. The result of that progression is really showing how God expanded David's kingdom. And in this map, the purple area is the extent of Saul's control over the territory that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's the size of Saul's kingdom. Compared to the green color, that's David's uh, kingdom. And then when you add the yellow in the north, that takes us into Solomon's uh, kingdom. That was our, our, actually, according to the uh, thing down here, the yellow is territory that was nominally controlled by David. So this area up here is the Euphrates River comes over from Iraq, and this area up here is in Syria. So remember the border that God promised to, to Abraham for the land that he was giving him went from the river of Egypt, which there's a lot of debate whether it's the Wadi El Arish here or whether it's the Nile. I, most people that I consult who spend a lot of more time studying this than I do think it's the Wadi El Arish for various reasons. And it goes from there to the river Euphrates. And it extends into the desert, extends all the way over to, to the Euphrates in, in Iraq, that all of that territory was what God promised to Abraham. But this is the extent of what came under Israel's control. And part of this, the area in the Transjordan here, uh, south of the, the, the northern part of the Transjordan, w went to two and a half tribes. The southern part of the Transjordan belonged to Moab, Edom in the south, then Moab, and then Ammon. Now, that's the focus of what's happening in these battles, is David gaining control of the Transjordan. Trans so you have these areas I've highlighted here, zeroing in a little closer. 
You have Jerusalem. We're going to talk about Jerusalem in chapter 10. Across the Jordan, almost due, due west, or excuse me, due east of Jerusalem is Rabbah, which is modern Amman, Jordan. Okay, ancient Rabbah is modern Amman, Jordan, and Rabbah was the capital of the Ammonite uh, kingdom. Then the next area we need to be aware of is Damascus, which is in Aram, in the, in, it's in Aram in the biblical times, but it's in Syria later on and in modern times. And then Hamath, way up in the north, is still in S- Syria. And then this area outlined as Phoenicia is uh, the area of, of uh, modern Lebanon. And so a lot of things really haven't changed, and as we go forward, we're going to see uh, some of these, the importance in, of some of these things and the, the, the parallel. So when we look at this first issue, which is the literary flow, it is designed to take us uh, through David's conquest and to summarize how God blessed David uh, in expanding his kingdom and to show his, his, uh, his blessing on David. Now, when we study through these, we see that David is still on the battlefield with his troops, even when we get down to the section in chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, we see that David is with his troops in Edom. David is consistently pictured as being on the battlefield with his troops. Now, that's important. When we drill down into chapter 10... At the beginning, it's Joab that he has sent to, to uh, Rabbah. But when we get to 16 to 18, there's another threat from the north, from the Arameans, or we call them Syrians today. And David takes all the host of Israel. He takes the whole army with him, calls up everybody. It's a major, major threat. And he goes, and he's going to defeat Hadadezer for uh, uh, for control of that area of, of uh, Syria, which includes what today, what then was called, um, it's this area up up in here. It's it's um, uh, Bashan. That was the biblical term for it. Today, it is the Golan Heights. See, it's the geography affects your your military strategy. You have to control the high ground, the Golan Heights or high ground. If you've been to Israel, you get on the west side of the of the Sea of Galilee and you look across the Sea of Galilee and there are these huge ridge on the opposite side. And when the Syrians were in control of the Golan, they had their artillery bat- battery set up there and they would just randomly lob shells across the Sea of Galilee into Tiberias and a lot of the other settlements over there. It just wreaked havoc. So David needs to control uh, Syria and the high ground on the east side of the, of the Sea of Galilee. So all of these different areas are going to come into play as we go through this particular, uh, this particular story. So we've talked about the literary. We've seen how chapter 10 then introduces the next section with the lead-up as to why there's going to be this battle in chapter 11. Chapter 11, which is where we see the description of David's sins with, of adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. The first verse says, It happened in the spring 
of the year at the time when kings go out to battle and David sent, there's our word sent again, David sent Joab and his servants with him. Notice David stands behind. It's a very clear, obvious emphasis of that verse. David doesn't go. We've seen, I've traced this through the chapter 8 and chapter 10. David's out there on the battlefield, but David does not go out uh, on the battlefield here in in verse 1. So that's a, uh, a clear point. So why is he going to battle in Rabbah? Why is Joab going there? That's what chapter 10 is telling us. So uh, chapter 10 sets things up. Now, when we look, go back. I want to go back the map just a little bit. We're going to go uh, here. Let me find the map again. Come on. Go back to the map. And here's Israel. Israel today is located here. Now, one of the things that we see, I've got a better map to show this. One of the things we see here, here we'll skip ahead to this map. One of the things we see is here's Israel at the time of David. On their southwest border, they've got the Philistines. Today, it's the Gaza Strip, and you have Hamas. Then on the area across the Jordan in the ancient world, you had Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And this whole territory over here is the kingdom of Jordan. And then to the north, you have in the ancient world Aram. Today, we have, uh, we have Syria. So if you're in a, I mean, Israel's in a bad neighborhood today. Israel was in a bad neighborhood back then. How are you going to take out these enemies? How are you, how are you going to protect yourself? And from David's viewpoint, his, part of his mission is to expand the territory of Israel to control the land uh, that God has has promised them. So when we take a look at this particular uh, particular map, uh, how would we go about this? Well, over here we have Philistia, and they're strong. They have a almost a professional military. They have iron. They have ch- a chariot corps. They have uh, iron weapons. They have uh, experience in warfare. This is a significant military threat on on your your southwest. If David's plan, and I believe that's the plan, is to expand to his control across the Jordan, if he's going to attack Ammon, he's going to have a major problem if he's got Philistia on his back. Because if he takes his army and attacks the Ammonites, then he's exposing his rear to the Philistines. So part of the argument I'm setting forth here is chapter 8 does not take us through the order of events chronologically, but it sets things up for us a little, little bit differently. The first thing he has to do, the first thing that's mentioned, is he's got to defeat the Philistines because he has to be secure in his uh, in his rear. And so the first thing that happens is that he subjugates the Philistines and he makes them his, his vassal because otherwise they would threaten his rear. So he has got to bring them into submission to him so that he is then able to move 
east against Edom, Moab, and Ammon, because that is exactly what he does. Now, the way it's presented in chapter 8 isn't in the order that I think that it took place. So David's got a group back here, the Philistines. When he conquers them, one of the things that happens by making, making them his vassal is that um, we see a parallel with what happened earlier when he is, makes himself a vassal to Achish, the king of Gath. He becomes a soldier. All of his mighty men are in, become part of the army of Achish, and he's going to go to battle when they go into battle. And if it weren't for the grace of God, he would have had to have been, gone into that battle that occurred uh, towards the end of Second Samuel up near uh, up near the battle, the, the Valley of Je- Jezreel. So but one thing that happens, while David is a part of the Philistine army, he's going to get an education. He's going to get an education in Philistine uh, military training, in their strategy and tactics. Uh, he's going to become acquainted with their uh, elite troops, and these are identified as we get into this section in Second Samuel. There, there's reference to these groups, the Carathites, the Pelathites, the Gittites, and the Stalactites. Just want to make sure you're still awake. Okay, so we've got these different groups. Well, the, the, those three groups, the Carathites, the Pelathites, and the Gittites, the Gittites are those who are from Gath. These are different groups, elite troops in the Philistine army. They later become David's bodyguard. That, see, that's interesting. He takes his enemy, but he, they know who David is because of the time David spent with the Philistines. They trust him, and they shift their loyalty and swear loyalty oaths to David, and it's, it's built on integrity. And so they're, they're, they're trustworthy. They're going to be, be mentioned, but they become uh, the... Uh, core soldiers, uh, sort of the professional elite in in David's army. Now, the Philistines also had a chariot corps, and so they used the chariots uh, very effectively, and they had used them effectively against Israel, but Israel didn't yet have or develop the use of chariots. Uh, chariots were sort of like the light armor, they're, they're, uh, or you might call them mechanized infantry that was used in battle in very effective ways. There are two soldiers in a chariot. One's the driver. The other one has a sword. He has a bow and arrow. And that chariot can move and has uh, tremendous flexibility and maneuverability inside and around uh, infantry troops. But David doesn't have a chariot corps. One reason he doesn't have a chariot corps is because it's, it's expensive. You have to have iron. You have to have uh, the the people and the skills to build the chariots and to make everything work, and Israel just hasn't developed enough uh, to have all of that yet. And so he doesn't have a chariot corps. And furthermore, the terrain in Israel really doesn't fit yet. You know, we go back to the earlier map that we have here. All this territory of Saul is mostly in the hill country of of. Um, uh, the hill, hill country of Judah and the hill country of Samaria. And that's not territory where you're going to use 
use chariots. It's infantry territory, and so there's not really a need for infantry, and it's not until David expands, and you can see it a little bit in in this uh, this map, but over here towards the coast, this is the valley of Esdralon here, and this is huge agricultural area, and it's not really until they have control of the valley of Jezreel, which is the breadbasket of Israel that they're going to have the pasturage to feed all the horses they're going to need for a chariot corps. You've got to think in terms of terrain and agriculture, all of those things. See, when you look here at the map, you have Megiddo's located right there on the edge. Those of you who've been with me, we've stood right there. We've looked down over that huge, huge valley where you have all the agriculture where you can grow the grain to feed your, your horses for your chariots. Megiddo wasn't picked as a as a fortress and the headquarters of Solomon's chariot corps just because it was a nice place. It was located tactically because you it was close to the pasturage to feed the horses for the chariots, and it was also located on the crossroads where the Via Maris, the way of the sea, came across and cut across uh, Galilee, comes up here, and right there by Megiddo, it cut through there and goes across to the Sea of Galilee and then goes on up to Damascus. So it's a stride, a major, a major trade route. So it's tactically, or strategically rather, significant. So all of these things were important, and so David still had basically a, an infantry army at this point. It was organized around his core group of the 30 elite soldiers that were part of his mighty men, and he formed his organization around them. He had also these professional uh, mercenaries from the vassal states, uh, mostly the Philistines, the Carathites, Pelathites, and Gittites. Also, as part of what the Philistines brought to him is he had uh, archers, he had uh, heavy infantry, he had well-trained, experienced warriors and leaders. <clears throat> the rest of the Israelite army was made up of conscripts, and they were basically draftees, and that was a major problem because several times in Scripture we see them change sides. They quickly changed sides when Abner was going to betray David, and they went with Abner, and then later on when Absalom's going to start his uh, uh, rebellion against David, they switch sides. So there, there's not great loyalty among the conscripts, but they're, they're the everyday soldier. So what we see in chapter 8, go to that slide right here, there we go, is this order. First the Philistines, then Moab, then Hadadezer, and the Arameans, and then Toy of Hamath brings tribute. And then last of all, you have Edom. Well, if we look at this map, that doesn't make geographically strategic sense. Moab is located between Edom and Ammon. So to get to Moab first, after the Philistines, is you'd have to go through Ammon or you'd have to go through Edom it is more likely that the first thing that David did after defeating the Philistines was to go after the Edomites. And there's a reason for that. If you look at, uh, at this map, we have Bashan in the north. That's the high country, the Golan Heights. 
and up here is Damascus. If Syria is going to come south, the Arameans, then they're going to be blocked by the Transjordan tribes in Gilead. So there's a, a f- force there that you would expect. They didn't do it, but that would have blocked the Syrians from coming in. So, so strategically what David would do is, first of all, he would go across and defeat the Edomites. Then once he had the, them subjugated, and that took six months, and we read that he killed almost every man of fighting age among the Edomites. And it doesn't really explain why, but we raise the question, why does it seem to be so cruel? Why is David killing almost all the Edomites? Well, he doesn't want an army, if he's going to go north to Ammon, he doesn't want this Edomite army on his rear either. He wants to take them out so that he can go forward. The same thing happens, we read about the Moabites, that he had them all lie down and he killed every every two and kept one, had to divide them up into thirds, and he killed two-thirds and one-third survived. So what's happening in the development of David's expansion is he comes south around the southern end of the Dead Sea, he takes care of Edom and captures that, then he begins to move north after six months or a year, and he takes out Moab. Now, if you're sitting up here in Rabbah, in Ammon, and you're in a peace treaty with David, what are you beginning to think? You're watching David. He's taken out the Philistines, and he's made them vassals and strengthened his military. Then he comes across and he takes out the Edomites and then he pivots and he's heading north and he takes out the Moabites. Well, who's next? Well, you're next. So so when you jump into chapter 10, you wonder why is it that this son of, of the king of Ammon, Hanun, the son, why is he such a an idiot. Why is he mistreating David's emissaries? Where does this come from? And one explanation is this, that he already sees what's happening. And then in the midst of the battle that will ensue, or just before that battle, he knows David's coming. He switches loyalty from David to the Syrians in the north, and they immediately send troops. I don't think that happened in a vacuum. I think negotiations, he, he's, he's sitting up here, probably his father sitting there watching what's going on and says, okay, I'm going to die soon, but this is what's going to happen. And if this happens, if David turns against you, this is what you need to do. Now, the scripture doesn't get into all of that, but it, it seems to make a tremendous amount of sense. So we have David moving Uh, around the south, coming up from the south on the opposite side of the Jordan. And we have the Philistines that are out of the picture. And so we come to 2 Samuel 10.1. And it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And the first thing we learn, I don't have two on a slide, but the first thing we learn in verse 2 is then, is David's response. 
And David says, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. Now, this sounds like David's just being extremely gracious and generous, and the way it's translated is the word, I'm going to show kindness. A couple of things we have to pay attention to. He's going to show chesed. Chesed is a key term for what? Covenant loyalty. So that immediately implies David's not being a nice guy. David is sending these men on a mission that's in relation to a treaty. Now, I think David is being a little Machiavellian here. There's a lot going on that's not here, and so I'm just uh, speculating a little bit. But I think that one of the reasons David sends them over there is to see what kind of reaction he's going to get from Hanun. He probably knows that as he's been taking out Edom and Moab, that that has generated a certain amount of concern on the part of, uh, of the Ammonites. So he sends these emissaries over there, and this is where it really gets uh, rather interesting. And it brings into play a bit of the understanding the literary structure of this text and how things were, uh, are, are going to develop. In verse 3 we read, And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father, because he has sent comforters to you. Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy out and overthrow it? Now, how do you read that? Are they like the evil counselors to Rehoboam who are trying to instigate war? Are you reading it that way, which is a way I've usually read this, Or are these counselors men who are wise and experienced more like the wise counselors of Solomon who are saying, you need to pay attention to this. We've got this threat on our south, and now David's making nice to you, but maybe there's some subterfuge going on here, and this is all a play. He's He's about to attack, and he's about to take us out. So... I think that we ought to read it more uh, that way. They're warning him, and he takes it as a legitimate and valid warning. So what happens in verse 4, Therefore Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle and at their buttocks, and sent them away. He is, he is disgracing them in the area of their masculinity and their sexuality. Uh, studies show that, that Jews at that time, the male Israelites wore beards. It's a sign of manhood, uh, that this was true also of the Philistines, and it was certainly true of the Assyrians. And so to shave their beard is a real insult. I mean, it is it just calling them a Nancy boy or a fairy or something like that, and then he's cutting off their pants so that their buttocks and genitals are fully exposed. I mean, this is shameful. And then he's going to send them back. This is this is this provokes uh, is is uh, going to provoke war. So, but there's other things going on in this text. 
it, it sets up what's coming. It's foreshadowing. David's men are shamed and disgraced, specifically in the area of their masculinity and their sexuality. And then when we get into chapter 11... Uriah is going to be shamed and disgraced, specifically in the area of his masculinity and his sexuality as David uh, cuckolds him. Second thing we see is that the emissaries, when they're sent back, show honor and solidarity. They're going to do what David said. They go to Jericho and they stay out of the way. They don't go back and fight until they can grow their beards back. So they're out of the way. In the same way, we're going to see in chapter 12 that Uriah showed honor and solidarity with his troops, that when David called him back to Jerusalem and told him to go home and sleep with his wife, he wouldn't go sleep even in his house. His soldiers were out on the field sleeping on the ground, so he slept on the ground, and he did not go in and have relations with with his wife. And then the third parallel we see is that both actions were unprovoked. So there's a sort of a thematic introduction here to what's about to happen uh, from, a, from a literary standpoint. So we see David sending in his emissaries. The emissaries are sent back disgraced and, and shamed. And so now uh, David is going to respond. How do you react to this situation? David's not probably not surprised. There's no sense of that here. Uh, when David found out, he sent them a message, and the king says, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then come back. Then in verse 6 we read, when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the mercenaries. They need to strengthen their defenses. So they had a plan, and they go get the professional soldiers from the Arameans or the Syrians up north, the Syrians of Beth Rehob, the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maaka, 1,000 men, and from Ishtov, uh, 12,000 men. So they get 20,000 infantry. They're going to get these Syrians who are probably uh, have a chariot corps. He's going to bring them down. Now, there's no mention of chariots in this text, but the the terrain around uh, Rabah is flat. It's excellent terrain for maneuverability, for a chariot corps to fight, especially going against the infantry. And we know that the Syrians had had chariots as well. So even though the text doesn't mention, mention them, it would be surprising if they didn't bring their chariot corps down. And then they're going to set up an ambush. Now, verse 7 takes us back to the scene with David. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Now, that tells he sends his elite soldiers, the army of his mighty men, his gibberim. That's interesting. Gibberim in this context is his mighty men. But if you go to Israel, what you see written over the door of the male restroom is gibberim. Okay, just today it just means men. But in, in uh, biblical Hebrew, it's referring to these mighty, valiant soldiers. This is his elite corps. And so these are his ranger uh, battalions that are going to go in with Joab in order to fight against uh, the uh, people in Rabbah. So the people of Rabbah have their strategy, and this is what's going to happen. They come out, and, they, and it's just covered so briefly. 
Then the people of Rabbah came out and put themselves in battle array. So they come outside of the walled city. They, these, these ancient uh, Near Eastern cities were, uh, were walled and that they were, uh, they were basically a fortress. And so they're going to try to use this fortification in a way that would, um, that would, would strengthen them and trap Joab. So they come out, they put all their troops out in front, all the Ammonite troops. And then the second sentence, and the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rehob, Ishtov, and Maaka were by themselves in the field. What that means is he, they set them out of sight. This is what's called a hammer and anvil uh, tactic. The anvil is going to be the wall of the city. They're going to set their troops out in front. And as soon as the battle gets hot, they're just going to fold back inside the walls of the city, and that's the signal to the Syrians to come in from the rear and to uh, decimate the Israelite army. So they'll be trapped between the uh, professional soldiers of the Syrians, probably their chariots, and, and the walls. So this is really a trap that's been set up, and they are... Uh, just about to spring this on, on, um, on Joab. Now, the interesting thing is Joab seems to immediately realize what's going on here. So what I want to do at this point is go to a map here and kind of review what's happening. This is the big view of this map, and it's a little too difficult for you to see all the little lines of action here, but this summarizes what's happening you have an orange line showing um, David's emissaries going to Rabbah. That's, that's the top line. Then you have a green line coming back. That's the route of David's men coming back to Jericho. Jericho's just across the Jordan. And then you have uh, the route of Joab and Israelites, and it's a tan line, which you can't see real well unless you go here. And that's this middle tan line of their troops going, uh, Joab going to Rabbah. And then uh, later, what happens, let me go back to this slide, what happens after the battle at Rabbah, Joab's going to re retire to Jerusalem, and then there's going to be another assault, which comes at the end when Hadadezer comes down from the north with all of his army, and they're going to come down to, to attack. And so David comes up and meets them at this place called Helam, which is where he absolutely decimates Hadadezer's army. Now, what do you recognize about the name Hadadezer? Anybody? Eitzer. Eitzer. Who's Hadad? Hey, Dad was the Aramean name for Baal. He's the storm god. So it is, it, it, instead of God is our helper, it is Hey, Dad is our helper. So just thought I would throw that in at no extra charge tonight. So we have, uh, have this great battle. So we have to move through both of these battles. So what happens is Joab has this consult in the middle of, of the battle realizing He's gotten intel that there's this Syrian chariot corps or infantry, whatever it was, uh, off-site where he can't see them and that he's walked into an ambush. 
And so he calls up Abishai, and he divides his troops. Now, a lot of times this isn't a good idea uh, tactically in a battle because it creates a lot of command and control uh, problems. But he divides the troops, and he takes his mighty men, and he's going to be in the middle of the battle up against the wall, and he's going to set... um, um, uh, excuse me, let, let's, let's look at this. He takes the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. So he's setting uh, Abishai against the, the people of Ammon, and he's going to stand against, with his mighty men, he's going to guard the back, the rear, as they're attacked by the Syrians. And this is what he tells, uh, tells Abishai. Now, you might have read this a number of times, and not quite caught what's happening here. Typically what would happen if you're in a battle and you suddenly, the tide turns and you're winning the battle, what do you do? You pursue the enemy. You chase them and completely decimate them and destroy their ability to fight. What Joab is telling Abishai is don't do that. You defeat them. And if they start to fold and run away, then you turn around and help us if the battle's not going well with us. In the same way, if we are engaged in a battle with the Syrians and we're defeating the Syrians and they are folding, we're not going to pursue them. We're going to turn around and help you with the Ammonites because he's in a tight situation. This was not a great victory for Israel. They would have probably lost a lot of men uh, in this battle. And so then he encourages Abishai and tells him, be of good courage. Let's be strong for our people, for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So he is trusting in the Lord to give them the victory. But up to this point, all the way through this, they're just making the kinds of decisions you and I make every day at work and at home, whatever. We are just, we're in a framework where we're trusting God but we have decisions we have to make right and left, and we may not have time to sit down, claim a promise, prayer, whatever. We're just trusting in God's uh, providential care. So uh, this is what has taken place. Now, I want us to go to the next verses. We've come down through um, chapter 10, and we come down to verse uh, Verse 11, or excuse me, verse 13. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. So Joab has a victory. He turns back this professional corps, and they flee. And when the people of Ammon, who are outside the walls of the city, or inside the city, saw the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So uh, Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. See, it doesn't tell you a whole lot. You've got to read between the lines in terms of this battle. They, they don't stay there for a great victory party, which hints that it wasn't a great victory. They survived. God allowed them to survive and to turn back both armies, but it wasn't a huge victory. He takes his army, he leaves the field of battle, and he goes back uh, to Jerusalem. 
And so what happened next in verse uh, verse 15, when the Syrians saw that they had been uh, defeated by Israel, they gathered together. So they're going to reorganize and get ready uh, for the next stage. And then we have another episode starting in verse 16. Then Hadadezer, he's the king up in Hamath, up in uh, Syria, Hadadezer sent and brought the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam. So here's our map. They've got, he's up here in Hamath, he's got control of this area of Aram, which today is Syria, and he's got troops guarding the border up here on the Euphrates. So he knows he's got a major fight with the Israelites, and he pulls back his border guards to be with the rest of his army, and they're going to march south in order to take on uh, David. So they're, they're headed south, and David gets the news. His, his uh, scouts come back, and when it was told David, he gathered all Israel. That's important. He, this is a major, major battle. This is an existential crisis for Israel. So they've got this massive Syrian army coming south, and he calls out all of Israel, and they head towards, uh, towards the Syrians. He gathered all. They crossed over the Jordan and came to Helam. Now, I like this map because I think they drew it correctly. When Joab, let's, when Joab went, let me go back to the other map. There we go. When Joab went, he went directly across, and today this is, um, uh, this is where they have the King Hussein Bridge, which is the, um, the main bridge crossing over into, uh, into Jordan. You have one up in the north and one further south. Uh, down near a lot, but this is the uh, uh, King Hussein Bridge. And so they they crossed, uh, Joab crossed there and went to Rabbah. But this time they've got this tracked out this way where David stays on the west side of the Jordan. Why does he do that? You have to think about military strategy here. You can't just, oh, you just cross him either way because he's got an enemy over here if he stays on his side of the Jordan, then the Jordan River protects his his right flank, and so he can't be attacked by by the uh, by the uh, uh, Ammonites. So he's going to head further north until he gets to about the Sea of Galilee, and that's where he crossed over the Jordan, and he heads to this place called uh, Helam. Now this is a significant. Uh, significant battle site that uh, has quite a history to it. And what happens here is that is that he's going to meet the Syrians in a place called Edrai. This place called Edrai and Hadadezer has assembled all of his forces with reinforcements and he is going to meet David. And I have a quote here Uh, related to this and this location at Edrai, and this is quoted in two sources. It's quoted in a book by R.A. Gabriel, who is quite a well-respected military historian. He's written a book called The Military History of Ancient Israel. 
And he, I think there's a typo here because it talks about fighting the Muslim armies in 334 and 336. That's probably 734 and 736 because there were no Muslims in 334, okay? But it's also quoted in one of the more recent commentaries on 2 Samuel by Harry Hockner, and he just he quotes uh, Gabriel and along with his typoed dates. So anyway, he describes this location it's some 12 miles of traverse, traversable ground between the deep gorge of the Yarmouk River and the natural barrier of the Trakona, it's Ledja in present-day Arabic. It's a vast area of petrified lava blocks. Here the Byzantines withstood the Muslim armies between A.D. 334 and 336. I think that's probably 734 and 736. And it was through this area or it may even be later. Uh, and it was through this area that the British moved against the Vichy French in 1941. And I was doing some research trying to get those dates right, never did, but uh, this seems to be a place where there have been a number of major battles over the years. And it's, David picked his location because you can't bring any chariots in there. It, it is an extremely rugged area, petrified rock, and so it limits it to an infantry battle. Um, actually, the longer quote, which comes from our Herzog and uh, Gishon, who are Israeli military historians who've written about this, say that, um, and they give the same date. So I think this is one of those cases where you've got somebody who, who had a typo and then somebody quotes them, and then somebody else quotes them, and you just get this perpetuation of the wrong date. But uh, in their book, they, uh, on Battles of Israel, it says, he engages in a place called the Edrai Gap, which was 12 miles of rugged terrain between the deep gorge of the Yarmouk River and the natural barrier of the Trakona field of petrified rocks. Uh, this, they argue, is the only reasonable location for a battle this size, and then goes on and mentions the Arabs and uh, the fact that it would keep them from fighting with, with chariots. So this is a great location for this battle, and David absolutely decimates the Syrians. This is what we read at the end of the chapter. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians, and struck Shobak, the commander of the army who died there. And there's a suggestion there that if the commander was killed, that it was a high casualty battle. And in verse 19, And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So now these other groups that had been vassals to Hadadezer now become vassals to David. So David is expanding out into his control throughout that area uh, of Syria. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. They've been defeated by the Israelites twice. Now, when you realize there's no chapter break, the very next statement takes us from the end of the fall into the spring when the troops will go out to do battle. And so it's a natural flow, and this 10th chapter has set the stage for why, for, for David's, the next battle going back to Rabbah and David not going there. But the 
basic message here is God is protecting Israel and giving them the military skill and the information they need in order to win their battles. And so they're expanding their territory all through the Transjordan and up into Syria, and they keep winning battle after battle. The battle is the Lord's. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to walk our way through this chapter, to put things together. Thankful for the scholarship of many who have studied all of this and laid the groundwork for it. And Father, we pray that we might remember that our battles are your battles and that you go before us and you're the one who fights for us and that we have to relax and trust in you uh, because you are going to do that which is right for us according to your plan. And Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.